and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Julie Sasnovich. I'm David Bax. Tyler Smith is on assignment in his living room. Uh, <laughs> Julie, how are you? As well as can be expected, I guess, given... Yeah. You know, now, the world. How about you? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm hanging in there. I'm getting lots of TV watched. And as of this weekend... Lots of classic movies, which we'll get to in a second. But first, I want to tell you, uh, Julie, I want to tell the listener about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great and they sound great. Tyler and I use them uh, each and every day of our lives. Today, um, I was using them while I'm uh, working from home. This week, I was listening to the recently released, though 20 years ago, recorded demos of a band called Eat the Day, which is the side project of Wes Borland, the bass player from Limp Biscuit. And despite that, it's actually real good. Uh, Wes Borland is, has always been more talented than uh, the acts that he associates with. Uh, and this was was quite good and sounded very good on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Julie? Yes. Who are our guests today? Our guests, um, we have sitting right next to me is um, the editor-at-large of Battleship Pretension and also the man I married, Scott Nye. Hello. No regrets yet. On either. <laughs> Don't speak for me. <laughs> and then we also have, um, what is your exact title? From Nerdist.com. Just from Nerdist.com. Okay. I'm, from I'm Nerdist. senior com. editor. Like, senior I mean, editor. Senior uh, editor. That's a lofty title. I didn't doubt it. I just didn't know what it was. Okay. Senior editor of Nerdist.com, Kyle Anderson. Well, Hello. R via satellite. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, and we're here doing this special home edition of Battleship Pretension because uh, normally what we would have been doing tonight is the uh, wrap up of the 2020 TCM Classic Film Festival. The film festival so classic, they put the word classic twice in the name. <laughs> uh, uh, but because of that was canceled because of the, the um, improvements in air quality uh, lately. Uh, they TCM, the network did an at home edition of the festival in which they spent the weekend airing um, movies that had been uh, hits at past years of the festival. And then actually closed things out with a few uh, movies that were to have played the 2020 uh, film festival. And so I don't know how many of you guys watched. I watched a dozen and even dozen uh, of these movies. I think I did and, 12. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so we have plenty to talk about. I should probably stop jibber jabbering and we should just get to them movies. Um, where do you guys, I guess we, we'll start in, in order. Uh, what did, what did you guys watch first? 
Uh, the first on our list is Neptune's Daughters. Anyone have anything earlier than that? I do, actually, because uh, right. I, watched, I watched The Good Earth. Good for you. Take it well, away. Uh, Kyle, you? Uh, no, no, no. Okay. Uh, realizing I should have had everybody send me their list beforehand because we're going to have to do this every time now. But um, no, The Good Earth is the first thing <laughs> that I watched. And, I would, and I, the most charitable thing I can say is that it's always a good uh, uh, it's always a good sign when you look back at a film festival and in retrospect realize the worst movie you saw was the first one. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the good earth is, uh, I knew it was going to be rough going in because it's nearly two and a half hours of white actors playing, uh, Chinese peasants. Yeah. And it didn't even have enough going on to sort of make me forget that at any point, especially since Louise Rainier is doing, an accent that doesn't make any sense. It's just like Oof. foreign, I guess. Uh, I don't know if that's worse than the fact that Paul Mooney is barely doing an accent at all. <laughs> and so he still sounds very sort of like, you know, mid Atlantic thirties actor, you know, I have to go to the city where a person can find work. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it's based on Paulus Buck's novel and uh, takes place over the uh, many, over a few decades, but sort of before and after the 1911 um, Chinese Revolution, the establishment of the People's Republic of China, um, and it follows a, a farming family who go from sort of like uh, rags to riches, back to rags, and and who knows where from there. Uh, it's kind of run of the mill stuff. I would say most of the most of what's interesting about it is just something that I think about when I watch old movies a lot now. Um, is the scope and like crowd scene type of type of scenes like sure. this is a, yeah. it's a lavish production and it's just sort of like this is a weird comparison to make just something i happened to be watching the other night i was watching the finale um of uh the plot against america the david simon uh um miniseries on hbo and there was a scene at the end where it's supposed to be like a, a rally like a protest in new york and it's clearly like okay they got a couple a few dozen people packed into like a side street of new york and they're trying to make it look like a big crowd scene and when and and old movies constantly seem to able to just find hundreds of people to show up uh, for yeah. crowd scenes. That's the benefit of having no labor laws. <laughs> pay a hobo a dime, yeah. throw some clothes on them, and you're good. Yeah, so it's a it's a massive production, and there are some very like very like surprisingly similar to. Uh, um, Lawrence of Arabia scenes of like crowds waiting for a train in the middle of the countryside. Um, but uh, overall it was just not, it, it was, like I said, it was my least favorite movie of the festival. And Louise Rayner won an Oscar for that, right? I didn't look that up. I think she did. So well, you don't think she deserved it. Not impressed. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Good, good, good for her. Um, another thing about old movies though, is I, I like to, you know, here to be a running thing. Are you guys, if we were at the TCM Classic Film Festival, we'd be watching these movies in a darkened theater, right, with other people around. How often do you guys, when you're watching a classic movie or or something at home, do you ever look at your phone? Do you ever look at the? Uh, we uh, kind of keep because Julie and I watch a lot of stuff together. We keep each other in check, so okay. it's like an honor system kind of thing. You know, every now and again, we'll in a good emergency text we got to look at, but for the most part, we're good about keeping the phone away when it just yeah. me watching something by myself tougher to say yeah, yeah I, I no i'm i'm pretty good at, so sorry go ahead kyle i was just gonna say yeah basically i tried for this be, to you know ape the atmosphere of a film festival and, and my friend mike and i were were trying to watch basically because he usually flies out for this festival to yeah. try to watch the same things um and so we would text up into the movie and then 
basically lay, you know, put our phones down until the movie was over. We tried to, there's a couple of times, you know, if, if your wife texts you, there's very little see, you can do. <laughs> see, I have no problem ignoring texts and Twitter. My thing is, especially in watching old movies is like, what have I seen that guy in before? Yeah. And so I'm yeah. going to like my letterbox or, or IMDb. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the, the actor who plays Paul Mooney's dad is it's just another just thing to that's funny to reflect on when you watch old movies is that like this is a guy playing an old man in a 30s movie so i looked him up he was born like in 1868 (laughs) Um, and it's so strange to imagine his life being like already being like middle-aged when movies happened (laughs) um anyway so uh that's all on the good earth uh i also watched neptune's daughter so that makes three out of four so far kyle did you watch neptune's daughter didn't i didn't get to start watching anything until friday afternoon so you guys maybe have a little ways ahead of me okay well what did i talk about order but uh, yeah, I mean, this was kind of the requisite crazy musical slot that seems to occupy most festivals. It usually tends to be at the very end of the lineup. Uh, so here having it at the beginning is a different change of pace. Uh, and it was from a festival that it was from the only festival that Joe and I haven't gone to, which was the very first year it was on because we didn't live here yet. Um, so it was interesting catching up with it. It's a weird movie for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's like half comedy, half drama with no attempt to smooth over the seams of those two things. Yeah, I would say watching it. So like, you know, the Stefan sketch from SNL where he's like, this club has everything. (laughs) That's what I thought of watching this movie. So I was like, this club has everything. The South American polo team, synchronized swimming, cross-dressing, a monkey. Like it just goes on and on. (laughs) But like, it kind of mostly works. I had a good time. I I laughed a a lot. I wouldn't say it works. But if you had a good time, didn't it work? I mean, what's strangest about it is that it's kind of billed as an Esther Williams vehicle, which it is, only she isn't a significant character until like 20 minutes into the movie yeah. because it's spent this all the time establishing this whole other plot of this guy impersonating a South American polo player in order to win the affections of what turns out to be the comic relief female character, but who you think for the first 15, 20 minutes is probably the main character of the movie because it's the only one we're spending any time with. And right. by the well, way, say- okay. Um, well, uh, no one gets the wardrobe that Esther, Esther Williams gets. I would say that is her star. That is the significant, like, oh, she's clearly the star because yeah. she has these beautiful outfits throughout the movie. Um, I also will say to the listeners, maybe I haven't seen this movie, um, Scott and Julie aren't being uh, uh, vague or culturally insensitive by saying the South American polo team. That's literally how they're referred to. They're just, they're just the all South American polo team, apparently. <laughs> the whole movie treats South America like a country. It's very yeah. strange. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you did mention um, the other female lead, which is um, Betty Garrett, who um, she plays a character named Betty Barrett, which is weird. Um, but she I really love her. And she was in a lot of movies in the 40s playing a sexually aggressive woman, which is pretty cool. And I looked her up and she proposed to her husband in real life. Huh. So That's just great. she out there just killing it. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting cast because it's them. It's um, Esther Williams, Ricardo Montalban, and Red Skelton. Yeah. And then there was a character who's, again, from the country of South America who sounded like Speedy Gonzalez. And then I looked it up. Yeah. It's, it's Mel Blanc. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And also, weirdly, I don't know if you, I don't know if you noticed this, uh, in the credits, Mel Blanc's character is named Poncho, but he's called yes. julio in the movie <laughs> yeah. there's a separate really character that. there's another stable boy 
that is referred to as Poncho. Because I remember looking at the cast list beforehand and being like, I got to keep an eye out for Poncho, Mel, Mel Blanks in this movie. <laughs> and it was just like some like 16-year-old kid working on the tables was like, hey, Poncho. Um, but yeah, he is, uh, that's, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to spend the entire, I feel like, like every TCM wrap up, I could spend every movie talking about the like racism, cultural insensitivity of every, oh, everyone. Sure. but that, uh, yeah, Mel, Mel Blanc's Peter Gonzalez voice is, uh, uh, not cool. Not <laughs> um, great. And, not and also great. in a movie that, in a movie that is often very funny, um, yeah. he's not the funny part. I never thought he was funny in the movie. Red Skelton is funny. And then the, uh, the heavy who chases Red Skelton around the biggest, biggest laugh in the movie for me is that he's chasing at the red skeleton. He dives after him. He gets out of the way and the heavy, like puts his head through a bale of hay and then stands up in the entire oh, bale yeah. of hay. <laughs> it's stuck to his head. <laughs> and doesn't he, is that the character who has like really low self-esteem? Yeah. Right. Cause he just can't get anything right or something. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Another thing so good in that stuff. movie, which is what I thought was interesting was it has Baby It's Cold Outside in it. Yes. Um, which I looked it up. It was originally going to be a different song, but then the censors were like, that song is too racy. Use something else. So they used a song that had been written five years earlier, but had not been in anything, put it in this movie. It won the Oscar for Best Original Song. And it's interesting because we have all these associations of what the song is about. But first of all, in the movie, it's L.A. in the middle of summer. So uh -huh. automatically the references to the no weather. Sense. Well, <laughs> yes and no. It becomes cheeky. Yeah. It takes on an extra layer where they're like, oh my God, I can't because it's snowing. And it's like, I took it as playful. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm with Julie. The other thing too is that like, there's been so much like brouhaha over the years about like, there's been gender swamp versions and is that too woke? Well, in the movie, there's both. Yeah. There's, yeah. They do a whole scene with Esther Williams and Ricardo Montalban where he's the ag aggressor and then a whole other scene with... Um, Betty Garrett and Red Skelton, where she's the aggressor. So it's been that way, like, from the jump. So all these people getting, you know, getting their knickers in a twist about it. Go back to the source, guys. <laughs> and also, stop wearing knickers. Stop wearing knickers. <laughs> That's your first problem. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so... Um... Neptune's Daughter, 1949, uh, which I saw three movies from 1949. Didn't really? try to do that. Just happened to do that, uh, including the next one. I don't know what is next for you guys, but my next one is John Ford's She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. Same. Yep. Uh, and I had never seen this movie before, and uh, I'm head over heels in love with it, I would say. Uh, if I'm going to rank my top three, number two of the festival for me is She Wore uh, a Yellow Ribbon. Um uh, you guys had both seen it before? No, I had not. Okay. I, I had seen it many years ago. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it, it's a movie that, like, it has, it, I guess there's story to it. You know, when I was right, because I wrote posts on the website about this, and so I was sort of trying to sum it up, and I guess, I, I guess there's a story, but it's really this character's sort of uh, it, emotional arc to, toward um, uh being uh, before come, before, on his way to coming to terms with his retirement um, is really the, the narrative arc of the movie. And then throughout, there's just a bunch of fantastic scenes, many of them incredibly funny. Um, I was surprised at how much I laughed uh, at this movie. Victor McLaughlin's character is, is great uh, comic relief. Um, 
uh, even though he's apparently uh, in real life, Victor McLaughlin was even more of a right wing psycho than than John Wayne. Um, <laughs> uh, look him Somehow. up; he's a re- he's a real interesting guy, Victor McLaughlin. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he has uh, uh, again, like with the 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 bale of hay there was a big laugh out uh, moment where victor mcclogan is getting the troops ready for a mission and someone says something and he can't figure out yeah who talked and he's frustrated so instead of he but he can't figure out who to yell at so he just points at a dog and goes whose dog is this <laughs> <laughs> and i would say as far as like nonsensical laugh out line line lines in john ford movies it's not exactly somebody's fiddle from the searchers uh which is my go-to answer for funniest moment in a non-comedy movie ever um, <laughs> but it's up there i left i left a lot and then he has a, a big physical comedy like drunken brawl scene uh later but uh i've i've monopolized the conversation uh no i mean Scott. i think it's worth i mean for me anyway this is the movie i definitely point to when people say that john wayne can't act um just the whole performance in general but especially when it gets to the scene where he gets his silver watch and the way he talks about that watch throughout the rest of the movie is so moving uh and unexpectedly so like the whole movie is kind of about him saying goodbye to the troops and getting ready to leave his post but to sum it all up so perfectly in this like totem that I think a lot of us identify with older men, like pride they take in certain watches and stuff, especially of that generation. Um, it was like a good symbol to kind of summarize his career. And again, the way Wayne just plays older in general is so interesting. He's not, you know, overplaying. He's not it. old. He's, well, he's not old, that's what yeah. I'm saying, but he's not like overplaying the age aspect of it. There just seems to be a little bit more stiffness in it. Uh, Ford apparently said that he wasn't sure he was going to cast Wayne in until he saw Wayne in Red River, um, which proved that Wayne could at least act a little bit. Um, but this, to me, is his best work. Well, you, I mean, I, I would say uh, there's a um, I, 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 there's a back from when I used to watch commentaries, listen to commentaries in movies. I remember uh, the Joss Whedon's commentary for uh, the for Serenity of all things. Sure. He was talking about casting comedians in dramatic roles because comedy's the hard one or whatever. And I would say even more evidence of the fact that John Wayne can act is I think that opening sort of like back and forth with him and Victor McLaughlin in the, in, in his little like, I guess room his little uh, house his apartment or whatever um and the way that they're sort of like the 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 way they're gently sort of ribbing each other and there's a lot of history there that comes out in just a few words I would say that's even even more like right from the beginning of the movie uh, uh there's evidence that this is going to be a great uh, John Wayne performance yeah for sure um, yeah Julia, you haven't said anything yet. Yeah, no, I did think it was interesting, though, to see him, because this is only nine years after Stagecoach, where he's, like, a young, hot thing. And um, so it's interesting to see him play old and grizzled, because his career was long enough that you eventually got to actually see him play old and grizzled when he was that. So it's interesting (laughs) to compare him playing old and grizzled as a young man with how he does it as an old man. So it was a little, because I've seen those roles where he's a bit older, it was like a little weird to me. Like, I agree that he does. It's a good performance, but it did. It was a little strange to me. Um, I was a little mixed on the movie. Hold your pitchforks. <laughs> I, I think a lot of it came down to like pacing because I feel like it had like 10 endings. Like it could have, it felt like it was about to end for like 30 minutes. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Um, and then also, I like, mean, to, to a certain extent, it actually, it, I don't know about 10, but it actually does have like an ending and then a like, but wait, there's more. And yeah. It's like, it a literal one of those. So it got 
that kind of took some of the air out of it for me. Um, and then also, like, listen, we don't watch John Ford movies for good depictions of Native Americans. <laughs> and it was like a little better than usual in that they were like, oh, well, here are some tribes that are peaceful and that we all agree are good. But then it would turn around and be like, but these are the ones we can agree on are psychotic assholes. And I was like, oh, um, so it's like th- there is there's there's yuckiness that comes with watching old movies. And it's like, you know, it's part of the era and whatever. But it, it's still yucky. Like you said, with the good earth, it's still yucky. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. but it was very pretty to look at. It did Absolutely. have a lot of funny parts in John Wayne and all that. Yeah, I was just trying to look if it was maybe for first film because i haven't seen all of these but it was definitely one of the first yeah and yeah it looks great yeah uh well so after that because uh because i intentionally only watched things that i had never seen before and they showed a lot of classics especially during like the prime hours everything i watched was like either late at night or early in the morning luckily i was dvring things so i don't have anything else for a while i don't know what, what did you guys get around to watching on friday um this is yeah um well i rewatched a hard day's night yeah that was the first one i ended up getting to oh, watch cool. so i yeah. saw this many 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 years ago i didn't remember it that well um turns out there's not a ton to remember it's not a very plot driven movie <laughs> no. um but it's so much fun and it holds up it's so fresh it just feels like it was shot out of a cannon like from the very opening moment it's you get the beginning of the titular song and then the Beatles just being chased down the street. And it feels very like, I know a lot of people compare things to the French new wave, but like it really does feel like the French new wave. You have a handheld camera, you've quick cuts, you're shooting on the fly and just the sense of anarchy and this focus on youth. Um, I mean, the Beatles were young and inexperienced and Richard Lester, the director was young and inexperienced. And it just like watching this movie makes you feel young, <laughs> you know, like I know none of us are like old monsters exactly but like you I know you're gonna say the opposite i thought you were gonna say monster. none of us is none of us are young i mean youngish but it, it still <laughs> it made me feel like i was in my early 20s you know yeah. um and it, it, it could have like this movie could have given the beatles any kind of persona they wanted they could have made them play any character but like they played themselves right down to like everyone making fun of Ringo all the time (laughs) um and apparently only John ad-libbed the others were strictly reading off the script and I think that's why he comes across as the goofiest like there's a shot where you just see him literally playing with bath toys like he's in a bubble bath playing with bath toys um it was not Oscar nominated for best screenplay, which kind of surprised me for again, having no real plot, but it's a very British sense of humor. Um, and it's kind of credited often with creating the visual language of music videos, which I thought was really interesting just the way they edit to the music. Um, and I was like, we we're talking about it. We're like, why did this become a thing? Like, why didn't more pop groups like make movies about themselves and we're like oh maybe just because they made music videos instead you know they just had that instead um but yeah very good time highly recommend still holds up yeah I, this was i mean i've seen this quite a few times and they did the restoration i think was in 2014 yeah um and so i think i did go see it when it was restored not at the tcm film Fest. my my whole thing my approach to this um just because of you know what was showing and and when and things like that i i the top of the list was stuff i had never seen before Mm -hmm. and then the second was stuff i had seen but never seen at the tcm fest 
And then uh, only one thing uh, did I watch during this that I had already seen at the TCM Fest, which we'll get to when we get to that. But um, but yeah, so A Hard Day's Night, it was just sort of like, uh, if this was the the one that lined up the best for when I could start, but it was also like the perfect kind of entry point because I was finishing up my work day, kind of, you know, uh, and, and just like as a movie I've seen before. And yeah, exactly what Julie was saying. Like, it's so funny and it, it isn't very plot heavy, but it's, it's bit heavy. And, yeah. and like, it's, it's, it's like such fast, speedy repartee and, and all the characters in it, like Paul's grandpa played by Wilford yeah. Bramble <laughs> is one of the funniest, you know, uh, you and your book, it's one of the best. Um, and, uh, and everybody just make, and then the whole thing with like the two, the road manager and the manager, like there you go again, being taller than me just yeah. makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Cause they very clearly cast these two men who are very different heights. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just, it's so much fun. And, and they, you do make fun of Ringo a lot, but then you get that whole sequence where Ringo goes out feeling yeah. lonely and gets a bunch wrong. And like, I think that really endeared him to everybody. And like, so thereafter he was everybody's favorite Beatle, but then you get scenes where like George Harrison doesn't have a ton to do, but he has a whole scene where he is the funniest person in the whole wide world where he, the, he's talking to the, the magazine, like oh, yeah. uh, where they think he's a trend or a, a youth that they can use for their like trend setting issue. Yeah. And he just is like saying everything that they're showing him is, is bad and stupid. And like, uh, you, the guy was like, she's, she's a, you know, the, the it girl. And, and he's like, she's a drag. Me and the lads will turn down the volume on her and say rude things. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. they, they just say with the same level too, which always makes me laugh yeah. um, because they weren't actors. They were just talking and, yeah. um, uh, you know, and, and then the scene with all of the, uh, the press where they're answering ridiculous questions, cutting back and forth. Like, what do you call that haircut? Arthur is yeah. one of the, it's such a <laughs> stupid line and I love it. And, yeah. uh, uh, did you see your dad much? No, we're just good friends. Yeah. <laughs> Very British sensibility. It is. Um, and you get one of the best sound. I mean, you oh, can yeah. look the album a hard day's night is one of the best albums the Beatles ever did, yeah. but it's a yeah. soundtrack album. Yeah. Um, it's just wall to wall hits and yeah, it's great. And it's like under 90 minutes. I think it's like 85 yeah. minutes. Like it's really, it just hits. Yeah, it's shot out of a cannon. As you said, I like yeah. that. There is, um, um, I have a, the, a critic for the New Yorker had this line that I just loved where he said, though I don't pretend to understand what makes these four rather odd-looking boys so fascinating for so many <laughs> scores of millions of people, I admit that I feel a certain mindless joy stealing over me as they caper about uttering sounds. <laughs> I'm like, that's it. You nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kyle, something you said uh, uh, in the ramp-up when you were just describing your methodology uh, brought a question to mind. How many, for, all, for you guys who are... Uh, uh, all regular attendees. How many of the movies that TCM aired this past weekend were you actually at the screening at TCM? Because oh. I, I only I only count two uh, that I was actually uh, present for, and I'll, I'll call it out when we when we get to them. Yeah, I definitely but, uh, have one. We already passed uh, the Seventh Seal. I was there for that screening. Okay. I saw Creature from the Black Lagoon. Like I'm sure there's a fair. Yeah, you and I saw that. Remember? Oh yeah. Oh. Well, this I was um, the last seat. Is that that's, right. that's my next movie? Actually, I don't know. Okay. Um, no, 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 no. Wait. Let's just slow down. Slow yeah, down. I was gonna, okay, 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 okay. I rewatched North by Northwest. Uh, As did I. Never a bad time. Never. Um, it's not one I actually liked the first time I saw it. Which actually, I think Julie and I saw it together in college. The first time I watched it. Um, 
I think I had seen it already, but. Well, not as great a memory for you as it was for me, I guess. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and I, yeah, I was, it took me a while to be a fan of it. And it wasn't until the time before this that I saw it, but then especially we are watching it this time, that there's a real, like, I thought it was kind of devoid of the psychology that I like in so much Hitchcock, but there's an underlying weirdness to the movie that kind of goes unspoken. Like just the fact that he initially survives because he knows how to drive drunk so well. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody comments on that, but that he owes his life to his ability to drive drunk. Um, and just the whole like kind of fantasy angle of it, I think is played pretty well, where it's just this like a classmate of mine in college um, supposed that the entire movie was took place where it takes place at the end, which is him and Eva Marie sitting on a train. And he, the, this classmate genuinely thought that the whole movie was just him telling a story to Eve Marie Saint about this great adventure they could be on. Um, but it kind of has that charm to it of just like making it up as it goes along. And I know Hitchcock and the screenwriter like did kind of just string together a series of uh, set pieces that they wanted to do. Um, but it has kind of that endless adventurousness and endless inventiveness to it that I find really compelling more and more the more times I watch it. Yeah. I feel the same way about it. It's, it's, and I think it's them have or Hitchcock having f fun with himself kind of in a way like, yeah, um, this is what his fifth or sixth wrong man story. Um, and uh, this is him going like, what is the silliest version of not the silliest version, but like the, the version that is the least believable or the least, right. you know, he's not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the pathos of the fact that this man has been accused or they believe him, him to be somebody he is not. And all it is, is he's trying to, you know, uh, uh, he answers to when somebody says his name and there's a phone call for him and somebody thinks that, you know, whatever it's, it's a, it's a very simple misunderstanding that anybody else in the whole wide world would go, Oh, you must not be the guy or whatever. But because of this spy world that they've created, he he's just, it's too late. Like the second he gets up to go take that phone call, that's, that's it. And he's, he's done for. And then you get all the way to the end of it and Hitchcock goes, ah, you, you get it. They get out of it and it's fine. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to show you them getting up on top of the mountain again. It's, it's all good. And, yeah. uh, and you know, I love movies like that that are just like, we are done. <laughs> There's a few yeah. of those that we saw this weekend, but um and I, I just think that Cary Grant is like, so, I mean, he's Cary Grant. So I'm yeah. going to say something that he's charming, obviously, but um, I just think he has such an effortless kind of um, consternation. Like he, he, he's so charming, but he's also just like, what? Like every to every five minutes, he's like annoyed about something. And it, I just, I just find it delightful. Yeah. Right. He's oh, probably my favorite act time. And just like the whole scene of him. What's that? <laughs> nothing we're, we're having some sync issues here but that's fine oh, i'm sorry uh i was just saying that Craig grant's probably my favorite actor of all time and just watching him in that auction scene where he's just throwing out numbers is so funny to me where he's just like three thousand <laughs> 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 it's just the right i mean him and hitchcock probably got the timing but just the right amount of time between the outbursts go that it's always funny every time mm -hmm. i also love his relationship with his mother uh yes. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know why i'm um it's similar to what I was saying about the, the the good earth. I like, I like the way that old movies look expensive more than the way new movies look expensive personally. <laughs> and the, one of the things about, about when I think about North by Northwest, one of the things I think about is that every sort of new 
section of the movie or new location has like this massive uh, establishing shot. Like there's like the, the UN or like the, 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 you know, obviously the Mount Rushmore, there's like um, everything just, it just looks like a big movie uh, yeah. in, in, in a way um, that I don't, I, I, I feel like every year we do this TCM wrap up film festival, CCM Film Festival wrap-up episode, and I struggle not to be the they don't make them like they used to <laughs> guy, but it's like it's always on the tip of my tongue. All right, uh, so what are we what are we moving on? I to also next? rewatched uh, Some Like It Hot, which I don't have that much to say about, other than I continue to find it a, to be a complete gas. And uh, I, I know this isn't the popular opinion, but I very much value Billy Wilder's IL Diamond years above his Charles Braggett years because it was just a great concept machine they just worked through of great ideas for movies, perfectly executed with a great cast. Uh, I love all three of them in this movie. And talk about movies that end on just the right note. It's oh, yeah. overstated and it's been pointed to a billion times, but it is like the note you end that movie on. It lands. It lands <laughs> yeah. so hard. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of like in the other room and I kind of like drifted slowly into the room <laughs> to kind of watch more of it. Because yeah, I've seen it a bunch of times, but I'm like, it's just, it, it just, just plays. hits. Yeah. It just hits. Yeah. All right. So, are we, well, what are we moving on to? Uh, I guess really should have done this. So, Creature of the Black Lagoon. I'm uh, jealous that Kyle, you and Julie were both at this screening. It's my biggest regret of not being. It was on my schedule that year. I think it was it like was it opening night? It was not. It was, was it Thursday night? Or it might have been Friday night. I think. I think it was. I think I couldn't get out of work. So I feel like it was either a Thursday or Friday screening. It was on my schedule. I couldn't make it. Um, and it was in 3d. Uh, and then I never saw it because I was like, I want to see it in 3d, but then I, uh, that wore off and I, I decided to just watch it. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it, it, it's a real, uh, real short movie. Um, I'm kind of, <laughs> I, I had a lot of fun with it, but I'm also glad that it's as short as it is because I feel like there's not that much meat on the bones of this movie. It's kind of like it, there's some cool stuff with the creature swimming and a lot of cool underwater photography and the um, uh, the female lead. Um, uh, I'm forgetting her name now. Um, Julie Adams? Julie Adams is her name. Uh, of course, Julie knows her name. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Julie Solidarity. Um, yeah, I mean, she's great, but a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of the sort of like banter between the, and among the like scientists is no, is not any better than the movies you see on mystery science theater 2000. It's, it's like, it, it's, it's very superficial sort of science, 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 uh, <laughs> type of stuff, but it's all worth it for, for the, the, the creature, uh, himself and the, uh, the way that uh, without obviously showing anything graphic in terms of the violence, because um, it's 1953 or four or whatever, um, they imply that getting killed by the creature is not pretty. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it seems like people like get their faces ripped off and stuff. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I don't know if you guys have any more thoughts from seeing it at the festival in 3D. Um, yeah, well, I got the very last seat. I rushed in there. I was at kind of a weird angle with the glasses. Um, but yeah, I I enjoyed it at the time. I thought it was like weirdly pro-science because like a lot of these like creature features, sometimes the takeaway is like, we got to cool it on the science. Like people are going <laughs> crazy. But at no point in the movie 
are they ever like, we should stop trying to discover new things and reaching out and like exploring, which is cool. Um, also, I recently actually read a book about the woman who designed the creature because it's the only like major universal movie monster designed by a woman. Hmm. Um, but then she got swept under the rug. Like there was a whole issue where they just decided not to give her credit for it anymore. But so I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, well, no wonder the creature is so hunky. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're learning some things today. <laughs> uh, no, actually, but you bring up a good point, uh, Julie, about the or something I thought of when you mentioned the the pro science thing is that the Julie Adams like Paramore or whatever uh, his name's David, the character David Solidarity here, uh, and then the the his boss, the other guy, have the same general dynamic as Bill Paxton and Carrie Ellis in Twister. <laughs> <laughs> where one of them is like no we're here for the love of the science and this guy's like no we're here for the glory he's very superficial we're like the glory and we're gonna kill this thing and get the fuck out of here um i weirdly thought about twister more than once while watching creature of the Black. <laughs> interesting poll yeah if i remember correctly like the whole t- or at least the first half of it i was waiting for one of those two guys to be an out and out bad guy and i don't think that ever happens right i don't it's again, that was the one and only time I ever watched that movie was in the theater two years ago. But yeah, I mean, I guess no one, it turns out to be like Ian Holm and alien, like intentionally right. <laughs> leading people to their deaths, but still the Carrie Ellis guy is a jerk. That's why I think of him. The Carrie Ellis guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if anyone watched gray gardens. I didn't. Uh-huh. Nope. Uh, I watched one of the, see, I, most of these things I DVR and watched at my leisure, but there were two that I actually watched live and there were two that aired late at night because that's my schedule and one of them was 1933's night flight uh directed watch by clarence brown four out of four we all watched night flight <laughs> oh i'm so glad um yeah uh, this was a, a total blast um total um star-studded affair you've got your your clark cable your Robert montgomery your myrna Loy, your helen hayes and two barrymores for the price of one um what did you guys what did you guys think i didn't care for it I was, no. little, I was a little <laughs> Look, soft on Before it. this, I, I thought they couldn't make a bad movie about the airmail in the 30s. I've seen four of them. They seem to make one every few weeks. <laughs> they loved some airmail back then. They've all been good. And this one, uh, I, I just thought it was really stodgy. Yeah. I think the problem is they. it's like a really short movie that has a ton a of plot threads. characters. That don't interact. Yeah. <laughs> like, Almost none of the people you just listed interact with each other. Um, it's kind of like the big short. <laughs> like, yeah. do, you the, do you remember the trailers to the big short made it look like yeah. Christian Bale was like laughing at Steve Carell's jokes yeah. or whatever. And like, they're never in the movie together. Yeah. In fact, like, I think they even, they like interviewed Myrna Loy many years later about what it was like to shoot this movie. And she's like, I like didn't meet anybody. Like we were just all like doing it at separate times. Um, so it's based apparently on a book by, I'm not going to pronounce it. It's very French, but the guy who wrote The Little Prince, and it was about his own experiences flying like airmail in South America. Um, but, and I think the novel was kind of like pared down and bleak. So they were like, let's punch it up a little bit. Um, but yeah, it just leads to all these plot threads that like don't even necessarily pay off because like Clark Gable's plot thread is kind of the main one but it doesn't really have anything to do with like this main plot about like delivering the medicine. medicine. Yeah. The medicine's just sitting there the entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. We we should say for the listeners that it takes place over 24 hours and the sort of the main through line is that there's a hospital in Rio de Janeiro that needs some serums from a hospital in Santiago. And, uh, they have to, uh, 
the 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 airmail flies at night and it's very dangerous and there's a storm but that's just the one threat it's the same as other uh other pilots who are on their own uh airmail missions that have nothing to do with the serum uh clark cable among them and then there's uh some worrying wives at home and of course there's the um very more heavy administration yeah yeah uh Unlike uh, Neptune's Daughter, this one is very specific about South American geography. They so must, many maps. They must have cut to the map <laughs> about half the movie of where the lights are and the plane pass and the possible routes they could take. Learn so much about geography. But then, like, another bummer thing about them all being separate is that, like, Clark Gable is a very charismatic man. He spends the entire movie in a plane not talking to anybody. Yeah. And that sucks. Like, that's not what I want to see. I want to see Clark Gable. I would say it's even more, it's even more of a testament to his charisma (laughs) that he could hold my attention uh, behind his, his, uh, his, his goggles and, and, uh, and, and cap. I, I, I really had a a blast with this, with this movie. Um, Mostly because I, I think the thing that really sticks out to me that uh, Clarence Brown uh, included is while there's everyone's life is at risk up in the air and there's people in Rio de Janeiro waiting for this life-saving medicine. There's a coming and the wives are worried, but there's all these sort of overhead sort of tra- tracking shots of just like people going about their evenings. You know, you can sort of see into someone's window and they're not they're not members of the story or part of the cast at all and 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 that's sort of like that reminder of life just going on um there was i felt like there was a poetry to to that um that that i think did tie a lot of these things together yeah kyle how about you <laughs> i would have to say i'm i'm probably closer to the scott and julie camp but uh i didn't i, I did enjoy watching it i you know any any scene where john barrymore is in his office with the with the crazy you know like very stark lighting and the giant like could not be a larger map behind <laughs> him of south america and all the lights and him talking into the radio like that that stuff got me every single time and then we also have lionel barrymore playing like his his drunk buddy <laughs> like it's, yeah. it seemed like yeah. with eczema with eczema yeah like uh, uh, my friend and i were talking about it afterwards like that was that something that he added to give his character more things like the apparently it is and apparently he was famous for just stealing scenes like that yeah, yeah. just giving himself bits of business that would draw the attention totally and it, and it worked because he has those that that like dinner scene between him and uh, robert montgomery and i thought that that like that was a, g- a great scene like two good actors doing good stuff yeah. and, and i thought that the and actually uh, being on screen together yeah right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah um but all of the like the aerial photography oh, and all, yeah. like, the model shots and stuff that stuff is is I was lights gonna out say, yeah that was amazing um because a lot of that's not good enough to make you guys like the movie <laughs> oh my god you wow. talk about all the stuff that i liked i know but all i right, was sorry. gonna say that was the main i like the big board yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the aerial photography was amazing so it was actually in denver um that was filling in for the andes um but i guess the cinematographer was elmer dyer barely knew her um sorry i had to um he's apparently one of the first cinematographers to specialize in aerial photography so they like found a guy for that and that really paid off and i think even just the scenes of like offices and stuff were lit in kind of an otherworldly way. So that gave it some panache, definitely. Totally, yeah. It, it, it really worked to me. And, and it felt kind of like, and I wish that it felt a little bit more like this, but f- there for a while, like, it just felt like an old, like, like what Tintin is, you know, like that kind of oh, thing sure. yeah. that they're kind of trying to uh, 
imbue uh, that movie with and those stories with. That's what I felt like this was trying to be. I do feel like some of the, like, Clark Abel, I do think is is wasted. Um, Helen Hayes just cries the whole time. Like, that's, <laughs> like, um, and then uh, Myrna Loy, who is a big star, uh, is credited. Her character's name is Wife of Brazilian yeah. Pilot. Like, give her <laughs> at least a character name. Yeah. All right. Um, oh, sorry, David. <laughs> no, I, I'm happy to be uh, outvoted. Um, I'm happy to. It's not a vote. Represent. I'm happy to represent for my man Clarence Brown. Um, <laughs> uh, what's next for you guys? Uh, I've got. Uh, well, going by the Eastern uh, Eastern Time Zone times on the TCM website, 11 a.m. Saturday is my next movie. Uh, we got Man with the Golden Arm right up next. Oh. Good movie. Didn't didn't watch that one. I had some issues. Mm. I well go you go first. Okay. So this was my first time seeing it. Um and I I dug what uh, Sinatra was laying down. So it's about an addict. Uh Sinatra apparently did his research and it shows in the performance. A lot of layers. I liked how sympathetic it was to his addiction. Uh it didn't like condescend to him or act like he should just get over it. It took his addiction very seriously. Uh, what it didn't take seriously is his wife's own addiction. Oof. <laughs> uh, Oof. And it's just hmm. whole thing where like, she's clearly suffering from the same sort of debilitating kind of illness that he is. She's just addicted to their marriage, to love, to an idea of a life together. And the movie just takes every chance it can to paint her as just a big pain in the ass. Yeah, I really thought, and like, it's, she's played by Eleanor Parker, who's an actress I normally like, who tech, typically gives very understated performances, but she feels like she is in a different movie. Yeah. And like, the movie seems to be saying like, yeah, with a wife like this, wouldn't you be a drug addict? <laughs> like, that's really what I got from it. And at one point, to show how over the top she is, so she's in a wheelchair from a car accident. At one point, and I took special note of this because it seemed so wild to me, she took out a scrapbook and the title of the scrapbook, on the front of the scrapbook, it said these words, my scrapbook of the fatal accident. <laughs> totally missed that. And not only that, I don't even think anybody died. So I don't even think it's correct. But I, like every time she shows up, you're just like, ugh. So that, that is the major bummer. Especially, I mean, not to give anything away, but especially with the way that it kind of lets him off the hook towards the end and her, getting her out of his life is pretty rough. It's mm. roof stiff. Mm. Um, I should, uh, it's been, I will admit, I said good movie. It's been close to 20 years since sure. I've seen yeah. it. I, I just remember thinking that Sinatra was good and thinking to compare it to a movie from 10 years prior, The Lost Weekend, I think it's a better, uh, a more realistic, more honest and more raw depiction of, of someone going through uh, addiction. Yeah. I, something I liked about it is that it shows the ripple effect that drugs can have on your life. Cause it's not necessarily the main concern at every single moment, right. but it sets up chains of events that can, you know, bring mm. you down. And it also brings people into your orbit that can have negative effects. So it was a very kind of like holistic overview, I think of what addiction can do. Um, and just to piggyback on the Frank Sinatra thing, like, do we all like know he's a great actor? Like, I feel like I'm bored. people don't always give him the credit he deserves. I think. Um, but I think he is, he's, he's very versatile. Like he's played a number of types of roles with a lot of success. And even though he was really hitting his stride around the same time that a lot of other actors were like turning to like method acting. And there was like the Brandos and Montgomery cliffs, he was decidedly not doing that, but 
he, it's still very like convincing and authentic, I think. And like he plays like at one point he's going through withdrawal and he's like rolling around on the floor and screaming and going crazy, but you buy it. Um, so I just want to make sure we all agree. Yeah, for sure. I, I think yeah. a lot of what he Absolutely. was laying down, a lot of what the movie was laying down was more successful and some came running, but other than that. Perhaps. Um, also got a shout out, the great score by Elmer Bernstein. Yeah. Um, they have like a motif of this main theme that I, I noticed they were using to signify the addiction. Yeah, for sure. Like they played it every time he would kind of like think about drugs or like want to, fi- they never specify what mm. drug it is. Something you shoot up. I don't know. Um, and yeah, so this is around the time it's directed by Otto Preminger and he was just starting to realize he could just release his movies <laughs> without the production code seal of approval and like it would be fine and they still make a lot of money. So it is kind of wild for the time. There's, you almost see a needle go into his yeah. arm, right? And they, yeah, they really do not sugarcoat it. So I think it's most, oh, and Kim Novak's in it and that she gets more to do than she normally does, I think. They give her the moment of truth pep talk. Sure. Oh, she gave a good moment of truth pep talk. So yeah, it's very uneven, but I think it's worthwhile. There's also a very cute dog that drinks beer. Just got to <laughs> shout that out. So cute beer drinking dog. Yeah. Should we move on? Yeah. Uh, we also saw the next one on the docket, Mad Love. As did oh, I. This is another one that I, I, I was going to say good movie, but it's another one that I haven't seen in 20 years. So I don't know. Is it a good movie? <laughs> I really like it. I like oh, it good. too. Yeah. yeah. Directed by Carl Freund. Yes. The noted cinematographer. Yeah. Who invented sitcom lighting for I Love Lucy, among other things. Oh. Um, but yeah, you definitely get that because he was from Germ- Germany and came up in the German Expressionist movement, you get that German Expressionist style where like all the ceilings are 20 feet tall and like all the weird angles, which is really cool. Um, it's 68 minutes. You'll love to see it. Love it. Um, <laughs> a lot of plot for being 68 yeah. minutes. Um, it's based on a book that was adapted several times. Um, so this was Peter Lorre's first American role. Um, and I think he's really good. He had like an amazing ability to be sympathetic while portraying horrific characters. Apparently Charlie Chaplin saw this movie and said, Laurie was the greatest living actor. A case could be made. Like I, <laughs> I totally get it. Um, and yeah. Anyone else want to? No, Kyle. No. Yeah. I, this was one that I really wanted to see last year. Um, yeah. I thought uh, you did in fact see it last year. I was I, mistaken. That was, I, that was one I was going to go. And then for whatever reason, it was work related. I couldn't go. Sure. Um, even though it was really early in the morning on a Sunday, I think. So I was like, Oh, surely I'll be able to go to this one. And then I could, <laughs> um, but I was really happy to see it. And, and I didn't know anything about it other than Peter Lorre, you know, being a crazy person. So I was like, I'm in already, but um, I didn't know that it was, it was a remake of the hands of Orlock, which is a, a mm. movie starring um, Conrad Veidt that I'd seen forever ago. It's a silent movie. And I think that this does an amazing job of, cause uh, Colin Clive is in this, uh, you know, who played Dr. Frankenstein um, as the, as Orlock, the guy who loses his hands and then the hands of a murderer are sewn onto his hands are sewn onto the stumps of his, his, where his hands were. And, and they continue to want to murder and it's a very crazy kind of whatever idea, but that movie, the hands of warlock is all about the hands and you know, the murder and all this stuff. And this movie couldn't give less of a shit about that. Like he can, he can throw knives because the man was a knife thrower. Um, but it's all about how much uh, Peter Laurie's character is obsessed he literally he has mad love for Orlock's wife and will do anything to try to, you know, get him out of the way and have her. And he, he like makes a wax sculpture of her that is so lifelike that she can stand in for it later in the movie. And he doesn't know the difference. And then, um, 
in order to like drive Orlock insane, he, uh, because the murderer, the man whose hands Orlock now has, he, uh, that man got guillotined. So he's, uh, in order to drive Orlock insane, uh, uh, Peter Lorre puts on all this, this crazy contraption, this weird like neck brace to make it seem like he is the, the, the guy and that he, that the doctor has brought him back to life too. It's like, you will, you know, like whatever. It's just like the craziest thing I've ever seen. And uh, it's only a minute movie folks. <laughs> yeah. It, all of this stuff happens. Um, and you have key Luke um, who went on to, he was in a million things. I think very late in his life, he was the, the old man in gremlins who gives them the, the mogwai, but he plays um, Peter Lorre's like assistant. And, um, and yeah, it's, I, I thought it was great. I, I had a great time yeah. with it. it. It does end like, again, so fast. It's just like, well, this is the end of the movie. But, um, and, and finally the, you know, Chekhov's hands of warlock payoff. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Great payoff. Yeah. Great payoff. But, that, but that was it. So yeah, it's, um, uh, I dug it. I, I was really happy yeah. um, to I, finally see it. I did want to shout out key Luke too, because so, you know, uh, Peter Lorre plays a doctor and then key Luke plays his doctor colleague. And you know, that feeling when you're watching an old movie and someone who's a racial minority shows up and you just kind of tense up because yeah. you know, it could <laughs> yeah. get iffy. Um, it never did. He just, just his colleague is just guy. an Asian man and they never remark on it and it's not relevant to the plot and it's never icky. So yep. good job guys. Yeah. Well done. Um, I have nothing to add. You have nothing to add? Well, one thing I wanted to point out, Carl Freund, I mentioned noted cinematographer shot the good earth, which is two okay. years after this. This was actually the last film he directed it feel it seems weird. It seems like it's it's not a normal career path when someone goes from cinematographer to directing a couple of notable movies. He also did the mummy yeah. and then just like gives up directing and goes back to maybe mad love was very poorly received. I don't know. I don't know, but he just went I back to shooting movies. That it wasn't was, for him. It was well received by critics, but it was a little soft at the box office. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I think people found it to be very off putting, which you can <laughs> kind of understand. So much into the psychosis of like his obsession and like physical lust for the woman that it, I, you know, I, I could see even my mom watching it and finding it uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, it was made by MGM, which really surprised me because they did not traffic in this kind of stuff at all. Yeah. That was so maybe they didn't really handle the release mm. right or something. I don't know. Well, whatever happened, it yeah. soured Carl Freund on directing forever. Yes, so. <laughs> yeah. So what are we what are we talking about next? Uh, I didn't watch Double Harness. I so. did. I watched oh, Double oh. Harness. Okay. Here we go. Um, yes. So this was one that my friend Mike really wanted to watch. Um, and I was sort of like, yeah, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll give this one a watch. And, um, it, I, but, it, but it had William Powell in it. So I was like, cool this will at least be and it's supposed to be you know a, a, a comedy or at least this build is partially a comedy so it's like cool there'll, there'll at least be like snappy repartee and stuff like that and it was not like it was comedic but it was also you know super dramatic it, the whole the whole idea is that um ann harding is trying to get william powell to marry her um trying to make basically it's it's uh how to lose a guy in 10 days in a weird way but like <laughs> she's trying to get him to uh, fall in love with her to marry him because he's got all this money. And then she eventually falls in love with him while they're already married. And then he finds out the truth because her sister uh, keeps trying to steal or, you know, borrow money under false pretenses and they, they call her on it. And so it's this whole kind of like 
you you see it kind of coming a mile away and and there's some funny bits but like the the pacing is very slow and very leaden so and it's only an hour and nine minutes they expected it to be a lot you know sharper um especially considering uh, you know the the pedigree involved and um this is directed by john cromwell who is james cromwell's dad um and uh, i don't i don't think i've seen anything else by john Crom- cromwell at least not that i know of um but uh it was it was okay it was another 1933 movie um which seemed to be that that's my year i saw i think the most movies from 1933 this time but um this one year. this was it's a great year yeah but pretty low on my list i think for the for the weekend um, yeah, th- was this one we saw back in like 2015 at the UCLA Festival of Preservation and also like kind of weren't into. And it was strange yeah. because the year it played at TCM, it's like this legendary TCM Fest movie because it played twice and both screenings were sold out and people were turned away constantly. And I'm like, over this? This is the <laughs> one you're all going to freak out about? Pre-code, man, they go nuts. I know, but it's not even like the most notable pre-code movie no, in the show, it's, like by yeah. a long shot. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, the pre-code doesn't always mean what pre-code I mean, like, Night Flight is pre-code, but it's not like... Right. It's well, not yeah, what we're talking only, about. Only one way to find out if it's good or not, yeah, yeah. you yeah. know? I mean, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, I didn't watch the, any of the Vitaphone shorts. I was no. gonna, but you can't on the app. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, were, we were planning to, too, but then, yeah, they didn't put them up. Yeah. That's a bummer. Yeah. So, then next up is uh, Howard Hawks' Sergeant York uh, from 1941, which I had never seen. Scott, did you... See do this last year at the festival? I did see this last year at the I, festival. I thought so. I thought so because it was the, I remember being the first movie to, that played in the new uh, venue, which I yeah. still haven't been to. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like I'm a broken record because I liked almost everything that I saw, but I, uh, I like this quite a bit. It, I didn't know much about it at all going in. I didn't know it was based on a true story. Um, it's interesting. The title is a bit of a spoiler um, because so much of the movie is in like debating whether or not to even join the army. Um, but I guess because he was a public figure at the time, um, super famous. Yeah. People knew going in what, uh, where the, where these things were going. I I didn't, I didn't know. Um, and I, like I was saying, uh, I was, I was comparing uh, creatures from the black lagoon to twister, a more recent movie. I thought about American sniper a lot while watching Sergeant York. Um, it seems similarly about someone who uh, starts off as kind of a, I don't know, roused about, what would you call him? He's a, <laughs> he's, he's a, he's a drunk. Yeah. A bit of a drunk um, yeah. And, uh, and, and then he first finds Jesus and then he finds uh, the strength to kill Nazis or not Nazis. <laughs> it's world, sorry. It's world war one, not Nazis uh, to kill Germans. It's clearly, I feel like coming out in 1941 as it did in September of 1941, it's clearly you know, like a propagandistic let's, we should get into the war type of type yeah, of movie. And in fact, that was apparently the reason that uh, Sergeant York finally gave away the film rights. Uh, he resisted for decades, literally. And then finally someone was like, could help Americans fight the Nazis. He's like, fight the Nazis. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, that, that doesn't surprise me uh, at all. But yeah, what did surprise me is for a movie called Sergeant York, that's, it's, what, it's like two hours and 15 minutes long, and it's like an hour and a half before 
he goes to the army or before yeah. he goes to war, you know, it's so much of it is about him trying to make something of himself in his small, uh, I was going to say town. It's more of a holler, um, in sort of like, uh, nearly uncontacted Tennessee. They, the movie has, uh, this great, like Patois, this, this, this way of, uh, this dialect that's very specific that everyone, uh, uh talks in uh, uh walter brennan is fantastic as the general store owner slash pastor um that shepherds uh uh alvin york uh to the uh the to, to the light of uh of the lord um uh and and he's got uh he's obviously with his very distinctive voice very great at selling this uh backwards way of speaking you know when a traveling salesman comes through trying to sell fancy hats you should sell these fancy hats in your store the women love them and he's uh and he's like oh most women around here wear whatever hats and the young ones go bar-headed um, <laughs> uh, it's a it's a great walter brennan uh, moment there but um uh yeah i i really liked it i don't necessarily agree with everything the movie i think oh, comes sure. to uh about about uh about killing people <laughs> um, <laughs> um but uh I, I definitely think it's a a, a very uh accomplished movie i don't know Did anybody else watch it this weekend or, or just just me no. I think just you. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a very persuasive argument for a point of view I don't agree with. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I forgot about the dialect thing. I did admire their commitment to sticking with that very weird way of talking for so long. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, next up for me is They Live by Night. I, I did watch Safety Last. Oh, you did? Um, okay. Just uh, We rewatched Safety Last. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I'm the odd man out again. <sighs> Way to go. Um, (laughs) So yeah, this is obviously a Harold Lloyd movie, um, kind of considered part of the holy trinity of silent comedians along with Chaplin and Keaton. But I think where he stands apart is like, to me at least, like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, in their movies, they never seem like normal, real people. Like they seem like total weirdos who got into weird situations because they were being weird. Um, Whereas Harold Lloyd is genuinely trying to sell that he's just a normal guy who got caught in a situation that got away from him. And that is deceptively hard. Um, and I think he's, he's really good at it. I should it. say, I, real, real, if I could just interrupt you yeah. for a second, uh, co-host Tyler Smith, who's not here right now, wrote an entire paper in his uh, grad school about this very concept, and you can find it uh, at battleshipretention.com. So. Love it. Um, but yeah, I think he's kind of underrated because of that. So in this movie, the thing it's famous for is the image of him hanging off the hands of a clock on the side of a tall building. What you maybe don't know if you haven't seen it, that's part of a 20-minute set piece in a 73-minute movie. <laughs> so basically, that's not even the craziest part of that set piece. He spends 20 minutes climbing the side of a building and encountering obstacles on every single floor. So it's basically the raid. <laughs> no, like, I thought of the raid. I'm like, this is the same thing. Um, but it's it's a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. I, this is one I've seen before, but I was like, I have to watch it this weekend. And yeah, um, yeah it's it's amazing. Like, and what you were saying about Harold Lloyd, I think is exactly right. Like uh, he is the, you you are with him so like from minute one of the movie um the it opens with this this great visual gag where it's they're making it seem like he's in prison yeah. and about to get hanged yeah. but actually he's just on the other side of a gate and his parents and his his girlfriend or his sister whoever it is are, are like gonna take him to 
uh, are, are going to say goodbye to him as he goes off to the big city. Like it's, it's a super yeah. funny, uh, hmm. you know, just opening. Um, but yeah, he, and he's just such an every man. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, a lot talked about how he was, you know, with the glasses on, which are his like trademark, he, he was the man of the twenties. And so like, um, uh, I think that that comes across really well in, several of his films, but this one, I think for me is the one that like you, you are just with him from start to finish and you want him to climb the thing and you're so worried about it and his friend and there's like, you know, birds and just everything gets in his way as he's trying to climb up the stupid thing. And I'm and a, and a mouse runs through his pant leg. Why a mouse is on the ledge? Who knows? But um, it's great. It's, it's a fantastic movie. And yeah. uh, I was happy to see it again. As someone who used to work in a department store too, I love the department store stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It really rings true with just the insanity of the customers and the way like it takes on a life of its own and the gags he builds up of him ducking and weaving and putting on new coats and stuff is all really sharp. Yeah. And these movies like play with an audience because yeah. we saw um, Girl Shy at TCM Fest in 2012 and that was just great. Like they had a live orchestra and the way it just escalates and the crowd just lost it. Like, you know, it, so it's a bummer that we, you know, couldn't see this at the festival because um, they still, they play just as well yeah. now, I mm. think. Um, also his co-star in it is Mildred Davis who starred in 15 films with him and then was married to him for 46 years until she died. So great power couple there. <laughs> um, but yeah. It's sad how she died though. She fell off a clock. <laughs> wow. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, 73 minutes. It's a great time. Yep. Yep. All right. So, uh, they live by night is the next movie. Um, anybody else? Uh, no, I saw it years yeah, ago. I saw it yeah. a while ago. If it had gone on the app, I would have watched it again because I would oh. like it again. Uh, but it did wow. not. Why did they keep all this stuff off the app? Um, right. But yeah, I, I mean, I, usually at TCM Fest, I try to reserve a few slots for like filling in big blind spots. Uh, the the way that the programming went for the special home edition, it was mostly most of the time it was bigger movies. So I was able to fill in a number of blind spots. One of them being, uh, yeah, uh, Nicholas Ray's directorial debut. Uh, they were by night from 1940. Well, they say 1949, but uh, 1948 um, in the UK. Anyway, that's not the point. Uh, the point is I'm glad that I saw it later in life. I think there's certain, even like Rebel Without a Cause, what, seven years, uh, six, seven years later, is a movie that I didn't necessarily get when I was younger, I think, because I was too self-conscious maybe about like trying to be in touch with my intellectual side more than like my hormone driven side that um, I have trouble. I had trouble as a younger person connecting to characters like this, but I'm glad that I've gotten past that because I think they live by night is really, really terrific and really gets by in the momentum uh, and, and the propulsion of Farley Granger and Kathy O'Donnell's just um, uh, sort of raw passion for one another, even though they're, they're they're making dumb decisions they're not very smart people and um they're and and they're following each other hand in hand toward doom and you kind of understand that from the beginning if you use your brain at all but it's sort of irresistible to go along with them in this sort of this uh um this uh romantic criminal uh escapade even though it's not like you there's barely any crime in the movie it's mostly them hanging like hiding out in cabins um uh, but the whole movie feels like it's an it's an RKO movie, but uh, it clearly is not 
it's the, the the look and feel of it almost feels very very indie it feels less varnished than than the you know later nicholas ray movies like rebel and like 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 johnny guitar it feels like uh from the hip uh a, a lot of the time and uh it's stocked with i mentioned Farley granger and Kevin Donald, but every other character in the movie is someone that is great in the movie but almost feels like they were cast for just their face like there's so many people who have carrot like faces with character uh in in this movie um yeah really glad i i caught up with it yeah i watched i watched it a few years ago a couple years ago um and i i thought it was great and um in shout out to uh howard de silva who plays a terrifying man who's basically like the the main antagonist in it yeah he's uh, uh a lot of people would know him as playing benjamin franklin in 1776 but he was uh real scary in some films noir all right uh what's next i got a few i don't have anything to play amberson's do you want to watch anything in between uh, i watched casablanca with my wife who had never seen it so that was oh, really that's fun. fun fun how did yeah you like it? um she really liked it with um and it was it was it, so it's a movie her, then. <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> um but it's one of those movies where every line in it is a line you've heard a million times because yeah. it's been quoted a million times and so for her it was kind of nice it's like oh that's all this movie yeah. <laughs> all of it is this movie um you know in that that end sequence we you know with on the the um, airstrip is every, every bit of that is perfect and just like it works so well and and um and every line is quotable and um it's uh, it, it had been a few years since i'd seen it and and um i'm not sure i'm gonna wait that long again before i see it again um i i think because this is not one that i had seen a mil- this is for a lot of people is one that they've seen quite a few times throughout their lives i think of this is maybe only the fourth or fifth time total i've ever seen it and that includes film school so um uh, I, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a great movie. Like it's Casablanca. What else do you want? It was yeah, just, yeah, it was really yeah. nice to get to see it with my, my wife. It is one that I've seen a billion times. And yeah. one of the greatly contributing to that was I took a class in college where we literally watched it once a week for like five weeks. Oh my God. Uh, it was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it was, awesome. it was one of the best exercises that I did in film school. Um, and it like held up, like I never got sick of watching it. And it, that's continued to be the case to this day. It's one of those that I could, we can do the whole episode about it, so I won't go on too long. But yeah. um, just it is a kind of a bulletproof movie for people who don't, or maybe aren't like accustomed to classic movies, or maybe don't watch a ton. Uh, I remember I took my brother to go see this. We were this was probably like ten years ago, and so we were both in our early twenties. He barely watched any classic movies now, let alone then, and he completely loved it. It's like it's so involving and so cleverly written and so well acted at every turn and it just builds the, like you said, this climax that's just like unbeatable in the way it brings so many of these strands together and coming to just the right note at the ending. Um, yeah. It, it's a movie I never tire of. I, yeah. I love it. It's yeah. Wonderful. I mean, nothing really new to say about it. Also just like it's, it's everybody working at the height of their powers. Like a lot of people describe it as just a perfect aligning of every, every component at Warner brothers at the time to just make this slice of perfection. And it's also interesting. It's one of those movies that like everyone thinks about it exclusively as a romance, even though technically that's kind of the B plot. Yeah. Right. Um, which isn't good or bad. It's just interesting. There's this whole other thing. There's world war two stuff and like espionage and trying to smuggle people out. And like, you know, we, 
talk mostly about the romance, but there's a lot going on and it's all very good. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. main thread of the movie is a guy slowly coming around and making the right decision yeah. uh, under a fascist regime, which yeah. Um, cool. <laughs> I've got Amberson's next. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll mention, I didn't watch Amberson's, but I did because I was, fast? what's that? I was just wondering if I moved along too fast. You laughed at me. Oh, uh, no, I was laughing at your uh, comment about fascism, okay. but because of the delay, you're uh, nothing's oh, waking up. Uh, no, it's not. Why are you sorry? I don't know. It has nothing to do with you. It's a uh, zoom. It's a zoom problem. Um, no, I didn't, I, I didn't actually watch Ambersons, but I'll mention that uh, because I was DVRing everything, my TV was on TCM all weekend. And so I did stop like when, when they live by night was over and I stopped the DVR it happened to be the cake eating scene from Magnificent Ambersons. So I did sit and watch that, uh, that whole great scene. Uh, so, but other than that, I didn't watch it. Okay. Uh, I feel like the tide has kind of turned a little bit on Ambersons where it stopped being regarded purely as a compromised work and started to be more appreciated as the great film that it is. Yeah. Uh, and it, just every time I watch it, it is more and more, obvious that that's the case um however compromised it may be the bones of what's still there and every bit that's still there is so strange and well thought out and well executed very funny in a lot of spaces but deeply mournful for the most part and i think it's probably the saddest movie wells made um and just the pervasive melancholy that starts really right from the beginning of the voiceover of him recounting this bygone era um, which, you know, you think about when this was made in the early 40s, like the era he's talking about would be kind of the era he was nostalgic for, would in the era his parents were around for and that he would see in, uh, maybe read about in books or see old pictures of. It would be like kind of the way we relate to the 40s or 50s sometimes of like this great long lost era. And just, he, but he doesn't recount it with any joy, you know, there's like, a sense that this is all dying and this is all going to slowly go along with it. And the way he talks about the Amberson family, just they it seem like a great family in principle, but he, the way he discusses them is clear that they're uh, headed for disaster one way or the other. And uh, I really especially admire the fact that he didn't cast himself as the lead, which he uh, wanted to when he first started developing it. But uh, he decided he was too old by the time he got around to it. And Tim Holt is so excellent in the role and such a daring performance for a young actor to be that unlikable and to be that sniveling and that like calloused about so many things. He doesn't try to make himself more like approachable or likable at any moment, even early on when he's playing like the kind of charming young man with a bravado. He's still so unlikable just the way he's like. I want to be a yachtsman and then just starts dancing. It's like, you dick. <laughs> uh, and, and also Tim Holt, Tim Holt ate that whole piece of cake for real. He sure did. <laughs> um, that's commitment, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a wonderful movie. Um, and really one of my favorite Wells movies. Yeah. Yeah. We watched it too. And, um, uh, I hadn't seen it in a, a, a good little bit. The first time I did see it though, was at, uh, I think with the arrow, there was a double feature of oh, Kane cool. and this. Um, oh. And so many people got up and left before this, which is just like we, Mike and I were annoyed even then. And I hadn't even seen the movie yet, but um, I agree with everything Scott said, but I also want to uh, specifically call out Agnes Moorhead, who I think is in a family and a cast full of people playing like people heading toward disaster. I feel like Moorhead is just like oh, yeah. the epitome of, 
of sadness and pity and and it's yeah she gives such a fantastic performance throughout as this woman who is past her prime before we even meet her basically yeah yeah i I mean i haven't seen it a long time but definitely agree with everything it's just so sad it's so sad but not like in an over-the-top hysterical way you just they don't have to be over the top and hysterical to communicate how sad it is you just know you just feel it yeah yeah good stuff I remember the first, I, the first time I saw it, there because there's that the opening sequence which sort of details the passage of time mostly through the changes in men's fashion. Yeah, and I was like, I was like, why didn't no one, anyone tell me about that? And I realized, oh, like everyone's been telling me that this movie's great. <laughs> I should have watched it before, uh, but why didn't anyone tell me about that sequence? Um, all right, so should we move on? Yeah, sure. So I watched because uh, I watched two night movies in a row. I watched Jules Dessen's Night in the City, which. All right. I said earlier that I would call out my top three. I have to say 3.5 okay. is Night in the City. Almost, it almost made my, my top three. It's really, really great. Did anybody else watch it this weekend? I did. Okay. Uh, I've you seen, seen it a couple before? times a while ago. Yeah, I'd never seen it. Did, Kyle, had you seen it before? I had seen it before, yeah. Okay. But it, it had been a while and I forgot a good chunk of it. So, um, But yeah, it was... yeah. Go ahead. It was great. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it, 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 there's so much about it that is like quintessential to like the sort of sort of like noir ingredients in terms of its like tour of the unscrupulous underworld, and it's got nightclubs, and it's got this character who just wants to be somebody, uh, which is literally a line from the movie that he says to to Gene Tierney, "I just want to be somebody." Um, uh, but it also is it it, it moves with a, a, a pulse all, all its own. A lot of that comes from Jules Dassin, but a lot of that comes from Richard Richard Woodmark's incredible uh, lead performance, and also an unvain lead performance. I'm uh, uh, like like Tim Holt. Like a lot of the times where you don't like this guy, Richard Woodmark, you're like, uh, why do you keep you know you're gonna shoot yourself in in, in the foot? Um, it has and another one of those classic more ingredients. It has a lot of plot. And yet, sort of like like Night Flight, uh, I watch a lot of night movies, huh? Um, <laughs> like Night Flight, I don't actually care that much about what the plot is. You know, for, for a movie with so much plot, the biggest moment in the movie is a wrestling or an off-the-books like wrestling scrimmage. Um, you know, that affects the plot, but it isn't like a, it, it, it isn't a, a, a develop, it, 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 it almost like hits pause on this constantly churning plot just to let these two guys fight for a surprisingly long time uh and in a way that is surprisingly uh, convincing great stunt work there uh by, by the by the actors um and uh uh yeah uh, great uh great sense of pace and use of uh of of london it also has a it has a terrific opening sequence that has uh um i don't know london as well as uh Kyle does, and he's been there a few times. I'm not sure where it is, yeah. but there's that great shot of like Richard Woodmark. You know, it's an overhead shot of him running across a square at night, and his like shadow is like, you know, this the entire length of the square, and then he's running through, uh, running through alleyways and, and streets. It's a, a great, very distinctive movie, and yet a very classic noir at the, at the same time. Yeah, you didn't. I mean, it's so much about the the making of the movie, I think, is really interesting. Where Jules Das and um, Richard Zanagate was it. Richard, is it Richard or Daryl? One of the Xanax gave him the, 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 um, the movie because he was kind of under pressure from, uh, the, um, house Huack. And so he went over there to make this movie. And during the making of that, he was blacklisted. So he finished the movie and basically was just in 
Europe and could go do other stuff. And then Gene Tierney also needed to kind of get out of Hollywood for a little while. Um, but, and so you get a, a very American lead in Richard Widmark um, in this very not un-American setting. And I feel like that really, you know, um, speaks to that guy's problem. You know, um, he, he's trying to make it and he's not even from here kind of thing, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and it opens with him running for his life. And that's basically what happens. The entire movie is he's yeah. just, you know, whatever he's, he's trying to hustle just in order to like get, get to where he thinks he should be, even though he has, what seemingly a fairly you know um lucrative career is kind of like talking up american tourists to go to this one specific cd bar that he works at um but he wants more than that and all this stuff and you know he's willing to lie and steal and you know do all of these things and he is everyone it seems is out to get him which is what you know what a good noir is i believe so um yeah it's uh it's a really it's a bleak film and and you know this is 1950 so you're you, 50s noir it, changes quite a bit once you kind of go into that decade um but this is this is one of the bleaker um noir you could watch um and I, yeah it's fantastic um uh, jules dasson this is the fourth of four um uh noir in a row that he made um and then was didn't make a movie for five years until i made rafifi um and all of them are great and all of them are you know great in different ways and this i think is possibly i'd have to look at a list but i think this is his best kind of by far i also want to call out because you mentioned the american cast uh richard Merck and, and gene tierney but the uh uh the the bitter couple who own that nightclub uh and run the nightclub are uh francis l sullivan and doogie withers and they're terrific uh as well yeah all right and herbert lom as the as the the crime boss guy <laughs> Oh, right. <laughs> Herbert Lom went on to play a lot of horror, uh, you know, horror characters in uh, Hammer movies and whatnot. Um, but he's great. Okay. Uh, what are we talking about next? I'm, I'm done with uh, Saturday. I'm on to Sunday now. Yeah, I can go on to Sunday. <laughs> Me too. All right. Well, then I'll start right at the beginning. 1938's Jezebel, directed by William Wyler. And I'm going to tell you right now, number one. This was my favorite movie of the weekend. Uh, did anybody yeah, else really watch good. it? I, I mean, I saw it a couple of years ago, but... Well, well, I will admit, part of maybe why it stuck out to me uh, uh, so much watching it this weekend is I didn't realize that it's a movie that takes place during a yellow fever epidemic. And it does. So there's like, <laughs> like, oh, we have to cancel the parties and close the theaters and people like have to stay home. And like when people are out, they're like holding handkerchiefs over their faces. And it was like, oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea going in. That's what this was, what was about. And maybe another reason uh, to, to speak to something that, that Julie was saying earlier um, uh, uh, and that I, we both mentioned earlier about watching these old movies when, when characters of color show up, you, you, you tense up. And this is a movie that even before a character of color showed up, I saw the opening title, like the, 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 the dater locator card that said New Orleans 1852. And I was like, oh, fuck. This is, <laughs> this is an, an antebellum South movie. Um, and, uh, and, and it is full of, uh, there's a lot of black characters, not only the main characters, a lot of black characters, and they're all, they're all slaves of, of the, uh, of, of the characters. We never see, we only see the slaves who work in the, in the house. Um, but, uh, I think the way that the movie talks about, um, 
the sort of encroaching abolition abolitionism William Lloyd Garrison they talk about uh, particularly and and they even they even talk about this sort of specter of of war even though it's uh, you know nearly a, a decade off it it feels really thoughtful and it feels like the those discussions could have happened in a movie about 1852 today you know what i mean um uh it it, it does I'm, I'm not saying the movie goes out of its way to be super uh respectful but it wasn't the like racist train wreck that i was uh <laughs> that i was afraid of it's actually a movie that is very aware of where its characters are and in, uh, in in history uh but beyond that it's it's a it's a star vehicle for for betty davis who like enters the movie riding a wild horse jumps off the horse does this great move with her like horse cane thing where she picks horse up the cane? whatever you call it the riding whip or yeah. whatever yeah but it's yeah i guess it's riding whip where she picks up her own dress and tosses it over her shoulder and then walks into a party that's already happening and drinks whiskey, which only the men are drinking. And it's like, like you couldn't have written a more perfect, like star entrance for someone like her. Um, and she owns the movie the entire way. And it's a movie that I, I it's the, the dialogue is fantastic and, and, uh, and carried out by a bunch of great actors, including Henry Fonda. Um, and the movie, because of the performance, because of the dialogue, because of William Wyler, the movie moves forward at such an incredible like it's an incredibly smooth clip that you almost don't realize how smoothly it's gone from being like the, the story has gone from being like a tempest in a teapot scandal about what color dress Betty Davis is going to wear to the ball to the entire city is, is, is burning and, and thousands of people are dying and, and she has to decide whether or not to sacrifice herself to redeem herself for uh, the the sins that she's committed, or to prove her love to Henry Fonda, or whatever. It, it, the scope of the movie grows at such uh, it, it, like a smooth and um, uh, uh, unforced uh, pace that uh, it manages to be uh, to to be about something ginormous when it starts out being about a red dress instead of a white dress. Yeah, yeah. I um I didn't watch it this time, but I have seen it a few times before, and yeah, like. I've never regretted watching a Betty Davis movie. Like in the thirties, she did a lot of these roles where she plays a selfish woman who learns to be less selfish and it's very <laughs> compelling every time. But also I think, um, I think I had read that. So Warner brothers, I think it was a Warner brothers movie. They were trying to create a competing movie to gone with the wind. So gone with the wind hadn't come out yet, but they knew it was in development. So they're like, Oh, people like these antebellum South movies with strong heroines. Let's, let's do our own. So I think it's probably aged better. Probably. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not hard to beat. Not hard to beat. It is, <laughs> no. Yeah. It is interesting to think of it as there being like this craze for these antebellum South movies <laughs> that there was yeah. like, they had to race to put them out, but yeah, it's great. Uh, I'll mention. I, I, I use. I, I realize why I use the word cane instead of horse whip earlier because there is a cane scene. I don't know if you remember when Henry Fonda comes to see Betty Davis and he picks up a cane out of the like cane bucket or whatever uh, in, the, <laughs> in the foyer. This terminology is great. <laughs> and he goes to confront Betty Davis, and her. He's standing in her doorway, and he's holding the cane. And William Wyler keeps cutting to this shot that's like the cane in the foreground of Betty Davis while she's trying to talk to Henry Fonda. Her eyes keep drifting to this cane, and it's like it's like super kinky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it definitely stuck out to me. 
All right. Uh, on that note, on the kinky cane note, um, I watched the next movie, uh, The Setup. Which, oh, have you seen this before? No, and this is, I'm trying to remember what I, where did I put, I put uh, She Wore Yellow Ribbon at number two. So this is my number three. This is my third favorite movie. So good. Of, I saw of this the at the TCM Fest in 2018, I guess. Yeah. You and I saw it together, Scott. That's right, we did. Um, and this is the one that I watched, even though I saw it at TCM Fest already. Because I woke up and it was on. I was like, I'm going to watch it. it. Like, it just started. And, I was and it's so 75 I minutes, so it's right. like, why not? Super yeah. short, yeah. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I, I guess I went in knowing the basic plot that it was about a fixed boxing match. I didn't know that it was essentially a real-time yeah. movie. Um, and I didn't know that it was based on a uh, like a an epic length poem um although i'm not uh surprised there's a lot of poetry to the to the movie um i would say the the movie rests a, a lot of it rests on rubber ryan um and i really think it's a it's a great uh lived in performance um uh, of a guy who's been knocked around uh a, a lot and um uh the the what i what i was fascinated to realize is the the thing that I would have thought would have been like the inciting incident, the like Bruce Willis and Pulp Fiction, like I was supposed to take a dive and then I won type of thing is the climax of the movie that everything is about the build up to that. And a large portion of the movie takes place in the, in the locker room, dressing room. I'm not, I'm not sure what you would call it. Um, David sports terms. Yeah. <laughs> <Love> <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, um, uh, with with most of the fighting happen, happening off screen, you know, while 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 the other characters are are getting ready um, for their own undercard undercard matches, and you've got these great little through line, like these storylines that that happen throughout. You keep checking in with other members of the of the crowd. I love the woman who, when you meet at the beginning, she's like. Uh, one of her friends like i thought she liked the fights so she was like oh i watched them through my fingers and then the next time you see her she's like wild-eyed leaning forward like kill him um i love that i love the guy who goes through like an entire seven course meal of hot dogs and popcorn and hamburgers over the course of the of the movie so i i like that but i i really liked how much of ryan's performance is reactive that you're seeing him watch other younger fighters because he's the older old guy who's been at it 20 years has been knocked out a bunch of times he's watching the other younger fighters get ready for their matches and you can see the the hope and the energy building in him over the course of of the movie that he's gaining from other people like uh like a solar panel like gaining their their optimism um and uh uh, I, I I really I really loved it. There's great, uh, and I'll throw it to Kyle so he can talk about it too. But uh, I wanted to mention the, the the poetry in the in the dialogue. There's a great the, 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 there's a great exchange between a fighter and, the, and one of the trainers about um, whether or not he believes in God. And the guy's uh, argument is that like I know it's a long shot, but uh, the payoff is so good that how could I not like believe that there's a heaven and the, and the trend is like, could you get a lot of this guy, make a book on the hereafter. <laughs> uh, Kyle, any, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I, this is, this is a tremendous movie. I think this was one of my top three, if not my number one favorite of TCM fest in 2018. Um, and, and for all those reasons you said, like the, the fact that it is, in basically in real time and you're watching a guy, you know, I've never boxed before, but I can relate to when he goes out into the ring 
it feels like he's going out on stage. Now it is his time to perform. And as somebody who was a theater kid, like it feels like, Oh, that is what it feels like. You're, you're nervous. You're like, what am I going to do? Okay. And all this, all that stuff is in his mind, but he's also fighting. And so there's that on top of it. And every, and, and there's the tension of everybody knows that he's supposed to take a dive in the third and he doesn't know that. Yeah. And he's like, I'm, I'm going to do it this time. Like, cause he's been such a, you know, a, a palooka as they call him for such a long time. Like he's, he's just a, he's just a schlub. He's a washout. And so everyone just goes, ah, we don't even need to tell him cause he's just going to do, you know, fall. The, the guy who isn't Jack Warden, uh, <laughs> like the trainer guy <laughs> who to me just seems like he um, should be Jack George Warden. Tobias. Is that his name? Yeah, George Tobias. He's also in uh, Sergeant York, by the way. Is he? Yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll have to do think of that the next time I don't watch Sergeant York. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i just i think the whole the whole the fact that we get to see the entire fight and you know he's constantly looking and it's it's late at night and and a big thing in the story is that the title fight was before he was it was supposed to he was supposed to be the fight before the big fight the main event but because of the radio they say his fight is after the main event so everybody's kind of clearing out nobody's it's it's just the people who have money on it and he can still look over and see that his girlfriend isn't there watching him because her whole thing is like i don't want to watch you get your ass kicked again um and and so there's that whole tension too like it's just yeah it's such a great performance for robert ryan like every movie robert ryan's in uh I, I think he's just like, or everyone that I've seen him in anyway, but I, I think he's just such a, a fantastic actor. And you, yeah, that was the only just, thing I was going to add is uh, if you see a Robert Ryan movie made between like 1948 and 1959, uh, see it because one, he's great in it. And two, he has amazing taste in projects during this time. I've never <laughs> yeah. seen a bad Robert Ryan movie in this period. Yeah. I think that was the same in 2018. Um, Noir Fest was right before TCM Fest that year in, in LA. And um uh, I saw Act of Violence for the first time. So and yeah. like a, yeah. oh, yeah. the, the next yeah. weekend saw this and it was just like, man, he's good. He's so good. So yeah, I, um, I, this was when I was like, if I'm awake, I'm going to watch it. And just so happens, I woke up like right as it was starting. So I was like, I'm definitely watching it again. Um, I, I, I will mention, I, I lost the name of the, um, the poet who wrote the poem that the setup is based on, but the character in the poem is black. So, uh, Kind of a, a bummer, but uh, yeah. understandable. Um, I also skipped by the fact that, because um, I said I would call out the ones that I was actually there. Uh, the Passion of Joan of Arc, I was actually there uh, nice. in 2016 when they showed that um, with the live, not only orchestra, but choir. And I count that among my favorite theater-going experiences wow. of all time. Uh, so uh, should we move on? Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anyone watched Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, no. Okay, because no. we've all seen it uh, <laughs> half a dozen times, right? Um, I didn't watch Red-Headed Woman, but that's another one that I... Sorry, Red-Headed Woman. That's the other one that I was uh, present in 2017 when they showed that. I did watch Anti-Mame. So did we! Oh, that's great. Uh, not Kyle? I, di I didn't watch Anti-Mame, no. Okay. Um, I, now, I'd seen, I'd seen the musical on stage, and I'd seen the 70s Lucille Ball movie. Um, I liked this better. Than, than than those um because of uh um the, I, it's uh, i mean it's rosalind russell and it's super funny uh, i i laughed uh, a lot especially the the first like the first act or so when we meet her at the party there's so many there's so many great like one-liners and who else do, like I mean, rosalind russell is one of the like who else do you want to say all these great like one-liners yeah. than yeah. this, uh, you know, screwball comedy, uh, 
uh, legend. Um, I love the, uh, uh, um, Coral Brown is the actress who plays her friend. Who's the, uh, uh, the, the Broadway actress. And she's saying something about, uh, Mames having so many wigs. And she says, if you just kept your hair natural the way I do. And then goes, if I kept my hair natural the way you do, I'd be bald. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's so many great, uh, great lines like that. There's a really great, I mean, I talked about not being on the same page, you know, politically with, with Sergeant York. I love how much anti-mame the movie and the character exists to take the piss out of conservatives. Yeah. Um, uh, I love that that opening party has like lots of women in men's clothing. Um, yeah. that isn't even like commented on. There's all, all sorts of, all, all sorts of great stuff, uh, in, in that, um, there's also a, just, I like these weird, TCM Fest like connections. We talked about Helen Hayes being in uh, Night Flight. There is a reference to Helen Hayes in uh, in Anti Main, where, where Coral Brown's character is mistaken for uh, for Helen Hayes. Um, anyway, uh, what did what did you guys think? I was a big fan. Um, I okay. So it's the <laughs> Rosalind Russell show. It's her movie. She's fantastic. She's on another level. It you watch it for her. But I think the thing I struggled with is that at its core, it's kind of a stuffy old fashioned movie about a wild bohemian free spirit. So that created to me this sense of discord where, and it's sympathetic to her. So the movie I felt like was always trying to keep up with her um, and maybe not in a good way. Um, Cause it, it really does revolve around her, but I would have loved to see this movie made like, five, 10 years later with like, I didn't find it to be stuffy at all. Um, I found it to be unexpected in a lot of ways and like, uh, sort of, uh, unsentimental in surprising ways. Like the whole sequence where her husband dies, is like treated as a joke. Um, it's just like a funny anecdote. And the opening, the opening sequence is her brother dying whom we never yeah. meet we just hear his voice yeah. but it's the same thing it's a joke of t- him talking about how healthy it is and then cuts to his <laughs> obituary like literally the next day yeah yeah i mean i can see that but i i mean more just like the filmmaking style not quite tonally there was just like a it felt off to me somehow i, don't yeah, know. I thought there was a great sense of kind of buoyant chaos throughout the movie yeah. uh just in the interaction of different types of people and the way she uh ultimately had and then occasionally seeded the upper hand. I mean, the whole sequence of her being stuck to a horse was hilarious. Yes. This was one of two movies we watched where somebody incompetently mounted a horse. Yeah. Um, Neptune's yeah. Daughter also featured somebody yep. bad at getting on a horse. Weird connectivity. Um, yeah, it had almost the whole Broadway cast. And I wanted to call out Peggy Cass, who plays her secretary. Um, yeah, she she won a Tony for that. And she's so funny. Um, it's the kind of roles that like Tonys are made for basically just like a really goofy sidekick. Um, and she's fantastic. Um, I think it was the highest grossing film the year it came out. Yeah. Is, it's so weird that this is like such a big yeah. movie. <laughs> and now it's a cult thing. Like the, the Egyptian shows it every year and people dress up and there's yeah. a costume contest. Like, I guess I was expecting it to be a little weirder given that, but I don't know. Well, I should mention, uh, we haven't talked about, for people who are listening who aren't familiar with how the TCM Fest works, there's a theme every year, and not every movie at the festival falls into the theme, but this one showed at 2012, do I have that right? Yeah, 2012, and the theme that year was design. Um, And this is kind of a perfect movie for for that, because one of the 
uh, very lavish and probably expensive running jokes in the movie is that every once in a while she just completely redesigns her uh new york yeah. manhattan apartment and so it'll just be a new yeah. scene and then suddenly there's like a a, a a completely different theme uh to to the to the apartment and sometimes that becomes part of the joke and sometimes it's not even not even mentioned uh at all yeah her furniture at the end of the movie is very integral to the plot yeah, there's a lot of furniture-based gags um also surprising anti-semitism subplot at the end can't say i saw that coming that took a took a turn but the movie Um, the movie itself is anti anti the movie is anti anti the movie is addressing anti-semitism the movie is pro-semitism yes anti-name is on the right side of history it's all fine just that it just that it went there at all um also something that i thought was interesting with the scene transitions were really strange it was something I'd never seen before because they would cut all the lights in the room except the yeah, ones pointed really like at that. the actors, hold them for a second, have them not move, and then fade out. It felt like a play. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But also there were there was at least one, because those were done practical, but there was at least one that I think was an optical. Like maybe they decided right. like, oh, this one should end the same way. Um, <laughs> and we didn't shoot it that way. And anyway, uh, yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because I, I liked those. Yeah, I was just like, I had... I've never seen that before. That's a choice. Yeah. I think it's probably worth watching for Rosalind Russell as with. And for the supporting cast in general, I I really like her nephew's first fiance um, who has the, like the most exaggerated mid Atlantic accent. (laughs) Wait, first fiance. Uh, Yeah. Well, he, he like dumps her for. Uh, Did you forget about Pegeen? Yeah, a name that didn't catch on in culture at all. Um, um, no, yeah. no, yeah, I like the first fiance's uh, yeah. story about ping about ping pong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, what's next? I watched Singing in the Rain for the first time in my life. Wild. Really? Yeah, Wild. that's exciting. This was one of those. This was one of those ones that I uh, had just always, you know, I obviously seen bits of it and even a few of the dances in full um in in classes or whatever but like i'd never actually watched the movie and and this is one where my wife was like oh you haven't seen that i've seen this and uh my wife is not a film like she enjoys watching movies but she's not a film buff the way that we all are um and so she was like well we gotta watch it so um uh gene kelly's very good at dancing did i don't know if anybody knows that (laughs) yeah um yeah I i think it's great like it's um it's just such a big lavish, you know, MGM musical and like um, everything about it. It's, it's super funny. And it's really like the satire about the movie industry, especially, you know, in terms of going from the silent film era to talkies, I thought was really funny. And um, uh, I, when watching it, I was like, Oh, this is what the artist was doing. Yep. (laughs) I was like, they're just (laughs) ripping this movie up. Um, uh debbie reynolds is great um uh and uh and yeah all of the all of the dance sequences all you know were were truly fantastic and and really um impressive um the one thing that toward the end once they make um i forget the actress's name but the the character who is has the voice that is horrible to listen to and you know debbie reynolds is dubbing over characters lena lamont lena lamont thank you once they make her like a, a straight up villain I didn't like it anymore because I thought, you know, throughout the whole movie, they, 
they're being very mean to her and it seems like there's no reason for it. And then all of a sudden at the end, she's like just an awful person, not just a person nobody really cares for, but she's just straight up awful. Um, and so I was on, I, the movie was on the verge of me not liking it at that point, but then it, it's almost over at that point. So then it's fine. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's like my one, my one complaint about the end of Sing in the rain. Um, but uh, yeah, it's great. Good movie interesting justice for lena angle well yeah, it's just I like, like it. there's no reason for like no, like just because she's bad at talking doesn't mean that you <laughs> need to be whatever but um but yeah good good movie i'm glad i finally saw it yeah i think that's a movie like how casablanca was warner brothers utilizing all of its best people at the height of its powers yeah this was very much that for mgm well and also like Casablanca, kind of an accidental success yeah. um it wasn't intended to be a big deal and wasn't a huge boss success in its time and just kind of became one over time it got repeated showings um because it's just like an excuse to put on a lot of musical numbers like they string a plot yeah. together out of it but it's essentially jukebox musical and like jukebox musicals it's just like how do we get to the next hit song uh, yeah but so funny. Yeah. And it yeah, all works. Very funny. Yeah. And the whole middle sequence there, that the, the sequence that they shoot for the movie, uh, it's the gotta dance, that whole sequence. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Sid Sharice Sh is in it. You're just like, oh yeah, I forgot she was even credited in this movie. Um, uh, it's just, it just, and it goes on for a really long time. Um, and it, it has a whole storyline in and of itself. And um, with like the mob and stuff, like it's, yeah. it's just, yeah. it's really cool. I thought it was really, really well done. And then, um, it being like so, uh, you know, a lot of the movie feels kind of realistic, quote unquote, as much as 50s movies made by MGM could. But like that sequence is very stylized and yeah. it's very, um, you know, um, uh, exaggerated. And that really worked for that sequence, too, because they're like, we're going to make this movie as different as possible from what it used to look like. So, um, yeah, really, really excellent. I think maybe the reason I don't feel super bad for Lena is because she gets all the funniest lines. That's true. <laughs> so I think like you come away from that movie having so much respect for, I can't remember, Jean Hagen and her performance yeah. that it kind of levels the field in a bit because she is so funny in that movie and gets yeah. such great lines. And yeah. So, yeah. But I yeah. She's, well, she's uh, definitely funnier than um, the uh, make them laugh dude. Dennis. I didn't think he was I think he was talented I didn't think oh. he was that funny well apparently you didn't first watch this movie when you were like seven or eight years old like I did <laughs> because the make him laugh sequence was my favorite thing uh, uh, and this was a movie this was a hand one of a handful of musicals that I watched a lot as a kid this one um, Sound of Music Seven Brothers Seven Brothers and The Music Man which is directed by Martin DaCosta who directed Anti Mame so uh, um, uh, what are we talking about next well the last one that i watched was floyd norman and animated life which is oh. was just on after singing in the rain and we just kept watching it while we ate dinner um but uh it's it's just a, it's a documentary about floyd norman who was um the first uh black animator for disney uh he worked with Walt Disney and he is still alive today um and you know is in his 80s and he has worked on a million things he went and worked for um Hanna Barbera television he had he made his own kind of short films he did um opening credit sequences for various tv shows and whatnot and uh and then he went to work for Pixar on their own things and then he got forcibly retired um and then they let him come back to work uh and he basically just you know 
even when he was retired, he would just go back to the lot and just hang out because he just liked it so much. Um, it's a, it's an interesting, you know, it's, it was made in 20, 2016 um, and they were going to um, show a few of the films, you know, like a, the sword and the stone, I believe. And then, um, you know, he worked on, 101 Dalmatians. He worked on uh, Sleeping Beauty. He worked on a bunch of those classic Disney films, uh, and The Jungle Book was, which was the last one that Walt worked on. Um, so they were going to show a couple of those at TCM Fest. Um, this, I think, premiered at some film festival uh, in 2016, but I forget what it was. But I had just never seen that documentary. I didn't know a ton about Floyd Norman, but I came away thinking that he was a, a really interesting character who had done, or interesting guy who had done so much with his life, um, and uh, you know, made me. And I'm, I'm a huge animation buff anyway, especially that era. So that was just kind of cool to see him work on all these things and just keep going and uh, never stopping and always innovating himself and the way that he works based on what the technology was now. Right. Um, and yeah, uh, I should mention that the, the next handful of movies they, that, that, that aired, I only watched one of them, but the next handful of movies were movies that were intended to, to, be, uh, to play the festival uh, this year. Um, did anybody watch the hustler? No, I didn't, but I did similarly. I think my wife and I had just gotten done watching the new episode of insecure and I turned off the Roku and it was on TCM and it was on the hustler and it was Paul Newman, like chalking up a pool cue or whatever. And my wife goes, do you think he's thinking about salad dressing? (laughs) (laughs) Always. Um, uh, so what else? What's next? Uh, we don't have anything called Bardley's, so unless That's, you saw Babyface. No, I didn't watch Babyface. Did you, Kyle? Nope. Uh, yeah, so I also watched uh, Bardley's The Magnificent, which is a uh, uh, an interesting story in that it was uh, a movie that was no one thought existed anymore for like 70 years. Yeah. And then in 2006, they found a, a copy all but the third reel, which they restored and then made a third reel out of production stills and trailer footage. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I thought that this was ended up being a, a, a very fun time. A, a really, a, it's a really, uh, early example of the dare based rom-com, like <laughs> the, I bet you can't get that woman to fall in love right. with you, yeah. uh, except with, uh, quite a bit more sword play than she's all that. Um, Just a bit. Just uh, but yeah, it's, uh, hunky John Gilbert, uh, stars as part of his magnificent, a, uh, Am I doing the math right? 17th century uh, French I just nobleman. said three musketeers times. I don't know. No, but it would have been because it would uh, take place during Louis XIII's reign, and that's when the three musketeers... I did not fact check. Uh, they just look like musketeers. I said three musketeers times. <laughs> it is during three musketeers times, yes. Uh, and uh, so he's, uh, he's a, a, a cocky uh, woman's man, ladies' man, uh, um, there's a, there's a line, there's a line about, um, he's like, something like, it's, it's funny how men suddenly remember they love their wives after I've met them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, uh, and then, yeah, another, uh, cocky, you know, more arrogant, more piece of shit. nobleman says, uh, you know, I bet your lands and titles, you can't, uh, uh, oh my lands and titles, uh, can't, uh, make this one <laughs> fall in love with you. Um, and then he under uh, yeah, under an assumed identity, the identity of a traitor uh, to the to King Louis the Thirteenth, he uh, woos a woman, and uh, it's as yeah, it's it's a comedy, it's a romance, and it's a, a swordplay movie. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it's not obviously didn't crack my t- crack my top three or four, but I would say it was a very enjoyable way to pass ninety minutes. 
Yeah, I think, I don't know if you mentioned it's a silent movie, just around the same page about that. Oh, so, yeah. Sure yeah. That. Yeah. So it's a silent, but yeah, my swashes were buckled, man. Like, <laughs> um, it's very, it was very fun and playful. Like you mentioned that line about, you know, the wives and it's very cheeky. And I feel like a problem that a lot of these kind of swashbuckler movies have, especially recently, is being so serious. Like just all these Robin Hood reboots and these gritty, like, whatever. It's like, that's not what we want. Uh-huh. Like, I think this is something else that the Errol Flynn Robin Hood does really well. It's like everyone is having fun. It's lively. It's playful. It's like, this is what we want from this. I mean, maybe not everybody, but this is what I want <laughs> from that kind of movie. Um, and I think when you don't have that, it can really be a drag. Yeah. Um, Although I will say the sword play itself, I don't think is up to the level of Robin Hood or, or to the uh, Fairbanks uh, Three Musketeers. It does feel a lot of John Gilbert and his sparring partner just sort of waving their swords <laughs> at each other. <laughs> sure. Yeah, but there, was, there wasn't a ton of action, but there was some great stunts at the end. Suddenly people are like oh, jumping yeah. off high buildings and stuff. And I want to call out the cinematography. And some great shots. Oh, you, yeah, sorry. Because there's one. See, this is what I get for interrupting you. You were going to oh, say gosh. what I was about to say. Oh, but um, there's a shot where he's swinging on a rope. And I don't know where they put the camera, but it honest to God looks like a GoPro. Because it's just, the camera's just above his head moving with him, like very quickly. Um, there's also another shot where him, he's on a boat, like on a lake. And there are all these like... Um, trees overhanging the camera so like as they're going across the lake the trees are like brushing against the camera which is really cool um it had a great score by the mont alto orchestra that they recorded a few years ago but it just was with the version we saw um and the female lead is eleanor boardman who was married to king Vidora, the director and she had a very short career mostly in silent films but she was really good especially like in this and she's most famous for the crowd but she had a very naturalistic style that was very kind of unique for the silent era. Um, She married him either before or during the shoot of this movie, very close to it. They were going to have a double wedding with John Gilbert and Greta Garbo, but Garbo backed out at the last minute. Harsh. Harsh. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, she's got a, I mean, uh, in the silent film, I don't know if you can credit sort of lines to the uh, actresses, but there is a great moment where uh, she tells her father's like guard, like, oh, no one's, tonight except for a brave and charming gentleman uh which she means bartless but the guard just assumes she's like being yeah. flattering yeah. to him it's a, a nice moment yeah apparently john wayne and lou costello are in there in uncredited roles we couldn't i didn't know about lou costello i had read that about john wayne and i was looking for him yeah. but yeah this is one of those where i wish we'd seen it at the festival because in the introduction they probably would have been able to spotlight a little bit more and mm. and the crowd would overly react to his presence but you know at least we'd know where he is yeah uh, oh, other, th- other than that expected crowd reaction uh i did i w- wish we would you know see this with an audience it would have been a lot of fun yeah i miss those people i hate <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's kind of the theme of the quarantine for me yeah is the, want like, that on uh, a t-shirt that's yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's it's a good swashbuckling time. Uh, did anyone watch Victor Victoria? Not this time, but yeah, no, another movie I've seen movie. seen many times. Um, so, uh, well, thanks everybody yeah. for joining us. Absolutely, uh, I'll mention I wrote a little like. Uh, blurbs in, in, in three parts about all the movies that I saw. You can find them at battleshipretention.com. You can also find reviews this week 
um, at battleshipretention.com of True History of the Kelly Gang. And Scott reviewed To the Stars, uh, Martha Stevens movie, which I was uh, read your review today. I was very glad to find that you liked because I liked it too. Yeah, uh, I was surprisingly moved by it. Uh, I'd forgotten Martha Stevens did that movie, uh, Land Ho. Which you liked more than I did. Oh, that's right. You didn't like it. All right. Well, let's I, I stick with the uh, agreement part. Yeah. Yeah. We'll agree. We'll agree on to the stars, even though I saw it in black and white and you saw it in color. Yeah. That's very um, weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's all at battleshipretention.com. You can email me at david at battleshipretention.com. You can email Tyler at tyler at battleshipretension.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Davey Pretension or at Tyler Pretension. I don't know what's going on at Tyler's other, other website and podcast, but uh, this week on the Patreon, we finally uh, did another TV journal. I've been doing a lot of TV watching uh, during this lockdown. So if you want to hear my thoughts on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I'm finally getting around to, uh, there that's what's going on this week on the patreon uh let's start alphabetically with kyle anderson uh where can people find you you can find me on twitter at kyle d anderson um you can find i do a bunch of other podcasts that have tangentially nothing to do with what you all are listening to this for but uh, i do a doctor doctor who podcast uh called five years rap but about 70s doctor who i do a, a podcast called uh, the writer's room about uh, a classic genre television and the writers who wrote that stuff. And um, you can read various things that I write on nerdist.com. I just reviewed uh, the new Blu-ray of the Golem, the, uh, the Paul Wegener film um, from 1920, right? Yeah. 20, I believe. And uh, the 1965 or 66, I think uh, Japanese sci-fi series ultra Q you can find that on nervous.com. Very cool. Uh, continuing alphabetically, Scott and I. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at rail of tomorrow, uh, where I've been tweeting furiously through the quarantine, uh, and recently posted my oh, top hundred list in double feature form. Wow. Just comment on my Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah. But that, that actually was a very, uh, entertaining thread. The, the double feature top 100. Yeah. I enjoyed doing that. Uh, uh, and then other than that, uh, occasional com. still trying to churn out some reviews here and there through the quarantine. Uh, and then at Criterion Cast, we're going to start going through the uh, Roberto Rossellino War Trilogy uh, to kind of speak to our current moment as much as we can. Uh, the first episode of that on Rome Open City should be up in the next couple of days. And finally, Julie Sesnovich. Listen, I'm not like you guys, all right? I married into the BP family. <laughs> I don't tweet and do all these things so just like get to know me like once <laughs> once we're all allowed to go outside again just like get to know me you, you know? love it when people come up to you out of nowhere and start talking to you no i hate that don't do that at all please don't do that that does remind me of a story at tcm fest though this happened i think last year where a guy came up to me a guy i did not know and started talking to me and he's like hey i just wanted to apologize because a few years ago at cinefamily i came up to you and started talking to you out of the blue and you seemed really uncomfortable and then his eyes kind of glazed over because he realized he was like doing it again <laughs> a few years ago Wow. wow, that's a guy who needed to let it go. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, anyway, so, like, maybe don't come up to me. Just, like, listen, Scott is my secretary, all right? So all communications go through him. If you have a message for me, get in touch with him. He'll make sure I get it. How's that? 
Um, that's fantastic. I wanted, I should ask you guys this question earlier, but this will be uh, a little bonus for the people who stay through the plugs at the end. Um, what Hollywood and Highland eateries did you miss? We were talking about this. We were talking about this. Uh, I really like the poke place. Uh, okay. I think they do a good poke. Um, I, did, I don't know about the poke place. It's like right behind the theater in, uh, what is that place called? Like the roof or whatever? The deck. The deck. The deck. Where there's like there's okay. like the waffle place and there's a there's a ramen place, yeah. right? The ramen place I would not recommend. Okay. Oh, I've had, I've had I've had decent ramen there. Oh, okay. I had some difficulties later in the night after oh. attending that establishment. Okay. Yeah, we did consider we're like, should we get delivery from Hollywood and Highland? And then we realized we didn't feel like quite strongly enough about yeah. any of them for that. Um, I like the crepe place. I'll stump for French oh yeah company. Yeah, and they have all sorts of sandwiches and salads too. They do. Um, Kyle, any hands? Uh, did you miss the anti hands? Uh, no, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I did not miss the anti hands. There's a, uh, we would always, uh, my friend Mike and I, who would go every year, and uh, we would always pick one movie, to, or at least one movie to see at the Egyptians. We would always go to The Pig and also Whistle. Yeah. Um, which is uh, good. And But yeah, other than that, it's just kind of like, I, I eat a lot of theater food when I go there. I don't really yeah. actually, no, actually. Uh, that yeah, I think actually the poke place. Now that now that I there you told you me go. where it is, now I'm remembering that I went there and it's delicious. Yeah, yeah, that is the place that I liked. They well, also have a Latin fusion place now that's pretty good that I can't oh. remember the name of. I don't know about that. Well, um, anyone who knows me knows that I miss oh, Cabo yeah. <laughs> the Cabo, Sammy Hagar's Cabo Wabo Cantina. <laughs> I really, I was really missing the uh, the the Cadillac margaritas and the. Deafening Indeed. tunes played to all three patrons. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I don't know about you, for me, because I use it to write, that's kind of good for me. If it's just like, I can't hear people, I can just hear music, I can actually kind of focus and write. Anyway, uh, thank you guys for being here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for putting this us. together. Thank you at home for listening. And Julie? We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.